Lord God, you, you know that we each come here this morning with fear and shame. And you know it makes us uh, insulate our hearts and throw up a blockade to protect us from your word. So, Lord God, we offer to you now our fear and our shame. In fact, when I said those words, you probably thought of something. So put it in a jar, hand it to Jesus, and say, Lord, I'd like to hear your word. His word is good. Father, it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. That's the title of Psalm 90, and that's why I wanted to preach on Psalm 90, just because of the title. Because I wonder what Moses, the man of God, would, would pray. What do you think Moses would pray? For the last 15 years, I've been rather fascinated with Moses because I kind of feel this affinity with Moses. Blasphemers, idolaters, for this you shall drink bitter waters. God has set before you this day his laws of life and good and death and evil. Those who will not live by the law shall die by the law. I feel an affinity with, with Moses, <laughs> but, but not that Moses, this Moses. Moses went to the mountain, and God spoke unto him. Moses, this is the Lord thy God commanding you to obey my law. Do you hear me? Yes, I hear you, I hear you. A deaf man could hear you. What? Nothing, I punished you, forget it. Oh, Lord, why have you chosen me? What would you have me do for you? I shall give you my laws, and you shall take them unto the people. Yes, Lord! Lord, I shall give these laws unto thy people. Hear me! Oh, hear me! All pay heed! The Lord, the Lord Jehovah! has given unto you these 15, <laughs> 10, 10 commandments for all to obey. I think I, I think I feel an affinity with Moses because Moses was an epic failure. We tend to forget that and end up portraying Moses. We rewrite the story so that Moses looks like Charlton Heston with a great tan. But Scripture says that he was the meekest man on the face of the earth. The word translated uh, meek is also translated humble or needy or poor. So if Moses wrote it, because it's in, in Numbers 12, if Moses wrote it, I don't think that he was, he was bragging, and, and I, bet it, he, I bet that he wrote it after he was dethroned as a prince of, of Egypt. He, he was meek, and he was an epic failure. I realize people define failure in, in different ways, but I mean failure the way I think most people mean failure. He did not do what he set out to do. A failure. And not just a failure, but an epic failure. See, I don't think you can be an epic failure unless you've been given the tools to be an epic success and maybe achieved a little success or what people think is uh, success. And well, and that would be Moses. 
He was given such powerful gifts and such powerful tools that if anyone should have succeeded, Moses should have succeeded, and he did not. He did not. He saw the good and wanted to achieve the good and did not. He saw freedom, and he wanted to set people free, and he did not. He did not do what he set out to do. And if that description seems wrong to you, let me remind you of his story, because we rewrite it and we forget. Moses was born into a Hebrew family of, of slaves in Egypt, where the Israelites had been in exile and now bondage for 400 years. Because the Israelites had grown so numerous, uh, Pharaoh ordered that all of their male infants be slaughtered. Moses' mother, you remember, hid him in a basket in the reeds down by the Nile, where he was found by Pharaoh's daughter, who gave him the name Moses. It means uh, drawn out of the water, like, like when a person is baptized. Moses, the man of God. Well, Moses' big sister sees all of this and suggests to Pharaoh's daughter that one of the Hebrew women might nurse the, the baby. And so Moses is raised in Pharaoh's house as a prince and yet nursed by a slave who happens to be his mother, who must have revealed to him at some point his true identity. He's an Israelite slave raised as an Egyptian prince. I mean, that's a miracle. If anyone's destined to set God's people free, it's Moses, right? One day as a young man, or probably a middle-aged man, Moses sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite in, in this apparent fit of anger. Moses then strikes down the Egyptian. But the Israelites don't trust Moses. Pharaoh soon learns about what happens, and Moses flees to the wilderness in order to save his life. Hopefully you remember, because we talked about this two weeks ago, that Soren Kierkegaard talked about the three spheres or the three stages of existence. The first he called the aesthetic sphere. That's when a person is ruled by their passions. And Moses, moved by his passions, tries to uh, set Israel free, save Israel. He tries to save Israel and failed. The second sphere is called the ethical sphere. That's when a person is ruled by their conscience. That is, their knowledge of good and evil, the law. They try to save themselves and save others with the law. Well, anyway, he flees to the wilderness, and for the next 40 years, Moses herds sheep in the wilderness for his Bedouin father-in-law, married to his Bedouin bride, whom he met at, at a well in the desert. He herds sheep, the ex-prince of Egypt. He herds sheep in the middle of nowhere until he meets a bush. The angel of Yahweh and, and the word of God appears in a flame in a bush on a mountain, and God says, Moses, God knows his name. Moses, I've seen the affliction of my people, and I've come down to save them and bring them into a promised land. And now I am sending you. Now I'm sending you to bring them out of bondage and into this land. If Moses had a prayer, I think it'd be something like this. What the hell? I mean, seriously, what the hell? We, we've been slaves 400, 400 years, and now you show up in a bush on a mountain in the desert? I was the 40-year-old prince of Egypt in my prime, and I gave it a shot. I could have used a little help, by the way. I was the frickin' prince of Egypt in my prime, but now I'm an 80-year-old fugitive shepherd with a speech in impediment, resigned to my own failure, and now you send me to save your people? What the hell? Now Moses doesn't say that. But if you've read the story, you know he says something very similar to that. And God says, Moses, I'll be with you. And Moses, see that thing in your hand, that stick? Watch what I can do with sticks. Watch what I'll do with your staff. And Moses, I'll get your brother to help. 
So Moses heads to Egypt. On the way, by the way, God shows up and tries to kill him. <laughs> Until Moses' wife Zipporah um, circumcises her son and does some weird stuff with the foreskin. We now know that circumcision is the sign of the covenant of grace, which contains the covenant of law, that it has all of this deep meaning, but Moses didn't know that. What the heck? What the hell? You call me and now you're trying to kill me? Once in Egypt, Moses threatens Pharaoh with the ten plagues. The plagues are utterly spectacular, and most of them, maybe all of them, happen through Moses' stick, that staff that he had on the mountain, blood, frogs, gnats, sickness, boils, hail, locusts, and darkness. Each time, Pharaoh does not let the people go because each time God hardens the heart of Pharaoh, and each time God tells Moses that he hardened the heart of, of Pharaoh. Must have, Moses must have thought, what the heck? Why did you send me? Why the hard hearts? Why these freaky plagues? And why this last plague? The last plague is the death of the, of the firstborn. Of course, Israel is saved by the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, and so the angel of death passes over uh, the Israelites but, but visits the Egyptians. The Israelites escape with the riches of Egypt, remember, led by a pillar of fire and smoke, a pillar that leads them to the edge of the, of the Red Sea where they're suddenly trapped because Pharaoh has changed his mind because probably God obviously hardened his, his heart. Well, with that amazing staff, Moses parts the Red Sea sea, the Israelites pass through and are drawn out of the sea, drawn out of the sea like Moses was drawn out of the river, they're, they're baptized. Once through, the sea rushes back in on the Egyptians and kills them all. You know, some say that Moses' first uh, attempt to free some Israelites failed because Moses struck down an Egyptian. <laughs> But God struck down a few Egyptians too, didn't he? Come to think of it, doesn't he strike down everyone? Doesn't he kill everyone? Or if not technically kill them, because he's the life and the death of death, if he doesn't technically kill them, does he not arrange for everyone's death? I mean, people get so worked up that God might smite someone. I think he smites everyone. Or he arranges for them to be smitten by something or, or someone. Well, I'm not saying that Moses didn't fail for striking down the Egyptian. I'm just saying that it might not have been for simply striking down the Egyptian that Moses failed. Well, anyway, ten, ten amazing plagues, pillar of fire and smoke, sea splits in two, and surely Moses must be thinking, wow, just wow. But why did God need, need, need me and my stick? What the heck? Whatever the case, I am just glad it's over. That's what Moses got to be. I'm glad this Exodus thing is over. You see, Moses is now heading back toward Midian where he'd been herding sheep for 40 years and he must know that it's not any more than a hop, skip, and a jump to Israel. Just look at a map. It's no more than like a two-week hike through the desert if you go slow. But they're taking a strange route and soon people start to complain. Uh, God does some cool miracles including this bread thing that comes from heaven but soon they run out of water and begin to complain. So, so Moses complains to God that the people are complaining to him. So in Exodus 17, God says, take the staff, Moses, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, Mount Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. In Hebrew, that word for strike is the same word that's used for what Moses did to the Egyptian. It's more com commonly translated smite, slay, kill, slaughter, or even scourge. So God says, Moses, you'll smite that, you smite the rock, and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. So Moses slaughters the rock. Everyone drinks. And then Moses goes up on the mountain and receives the law. You can think about that for quite a while. 
But Charlton Heston Moses says, God sets before you life and good and death and evil. He's quoting Deuteronomy 30. You see, the law is the knowledge of good and evil. But then Charlton Heston Moses says something that's not in the Bible. He says this, those who will not live by the law, those who will not live by the law will die by the law. It's absolutely true that we will die by the law. The day you eat it, you will surely die, says, says God. It's true that we will or have died or will die by, by the law, but it's a lie. In fact, it's the lie of the snake to suggest that by taking the law, the knowledge of good and evil, that somehow we could make ourselves or it could make us, make us live. Well, as you know, because you saw the movie, Moses gets the law, Israel has already broken the law, and then Moses breaks the stone law, then a bunch of folks get sucked down into Sheol, often translated hell. <laughs> Moses got to be thinking, what the hell? Those that survive soon make it right to the edge of the promised land, a place named Kadesh, means holy. They send 12 spies into the land, but all but two are too terrified to enter. So God sentences them to now wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all the adults in that generation are dead. Every adult, except Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and, and Caleb, who came back with a good report. Joshua and Caleb, which should probably be translated uh, Jesus and dog, because Joshua and Jesus are the same name in two different languages, and Caleb means dog, Jesus and his dog. Well, after 40 years of wondering and dying, this next generation, this next generation uh, comes back to Kadesh. And because and, we have the idea, right, that they were going 40 years on this long, they were just wandering around in the desert for 40 years. So they come back to Kadesh, and the new generation, the new generation now starts complaining about the water. Numbers 20, verse 8, God tells Moses to take the staff and speak to the rock. Now, this is really wild, but this rock appears to be no ordinary rock. I mean, I did some research this week and the term the rock with the article like that and then the rock uh, has appeared four, this is the fourth time it appears in the Bible. First, Moses strikes the rock. Moses stands on the rock. Moses hides in the cleft of the rock from the glory of God and now Moses is told to speak to the rock. Seems fanciful to us but in Jesus' day, People actually believed, they believed that the rock was like this miracle rock that followed them like a, a mobile fountain of living water that followed them on their journey through the, through the promise. That's what they believed. According to 1 Corinthians 10, it's also what St. Paul believed. He called it the spiritual rock that followed them. Well, God says, Moses, take the staff and tell the rock, tell the rock before their eyes, the eyes of the people, to yield its water. So Moses gathers everyone together, and he says this. Listen, you rebels! See, the most humble man on the face of the earth is losing his cool, blaming his brothers, even though he knows everything is grace. I mean, just a little bit of ego, and we resent God, and we resent our brothers and sisters. Listen, you rebels, shall we, that's Aaron, Aaron and me, his brother, uh, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? You see, God said the rock will give, and Moses says, I will take. I'll go get water for you rebels and give it to you sinners. And then Moses struck, smote, slaughtered, scourged the rock twice. And he used the staff, the power that God had given him to like basically crucify this rock. And the water still came out of the rock like a river. And it was then that God said, Moses, you will not bring this assembly into the land that I have given to them. He tells him that he will die because he broke faith at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, translated 
contend in holy. It means something like this. The, the place you contended with God, and he showed himself holy. Kind of reminds me of another mountain, Mount Calvary, where we contended with God, and he showed himself holy. And bled a river, a river of life, eternal life. 1 Corinthians 10.4, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Well, the next year, God tells Moses, now 120 years old, to climb Mount Nebo, just to the east of the Jordan River, north of the Dead Sea, so he can look across and he can see the Promised Land and die and be gathered to his people in Sheol. Deuteronomy 34, verse 4, the Lord said to him, this is the land. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you do not pass over. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab on that mountain. This has got to be one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. And that's why I use the term epic failure. Well, if Moses, the man of God, humblest man on the face of the earth, still had a little pride such that he lost his temper and struck a rock and is still judged to be an epic failure, maybe I'm an epic failure too. If Moses, the servant of God, with the most awesome superpowers and just a shepherd's stick could, could not set the people free, maybe I can't set me free. Prophetically, I've been called to free people. I have this written down on two separate occasions where in like these prophetic whatever, people said you're called to, to, to free people. I've had my ducks in order, seen miracles, felt sure that this was the moment, you know, when the gospel would break forth on this generation, and yet at that very moment, I've seen everything miraculously fall apart and then found myself leading a group of people through the desert who all want to know, Peter, where are we going? And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe I'm an epic failure. Maybe every one of us is an epic failure. I mean, we find ourselves imprisoned in this world, right? With so much hope for freedom. Freedom to love and freedom to be loved. And so we go to school, we gain knowledge so we can be free to do the good and build a life and then we watch as everything slowly dies. We make covenants and even get married to ensure love and produce life and then we watch as everyone dies and even slowly dies. And it's the same story for all the children of Adam. You may have only one relatively good or bad friend in this world or you may have a long happy marriage but you will taste the good and then watch as it dies. You may do a little good, like feed your cat, or you may do a greater good, like build a city, like the city of Jerusalem, but you will taste the good and watch it die. The work of your hands will turn to dust. You know, it wasn't just Moses that didn't enter. It was all those Israelites, and even the children of those Israelites. If you keep reading the story, they didn't really enter. <laughs> they did not occupy. They were exiled at least uh, a couple times, and they were never truly at home. So anyway, that's why I wondered, if Moses, the man of God, had a prayer, what would it be? Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You have been our home in 
all generations. Now that's a rather surprising statement from someone who spent his entire life trying to get a group of people to their dwelling place. If the Lord is his dwelling place, that means the dwelling place was traveling with him. That means the promised land was somehow with him. Verse two, before the mountains were brought forth or ever had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of Adam. The Hebrew there is Adam. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. That means your entire life is just like a day. I think this entire eon is just a day, the sixth day on the edge of an eternal seventh day. Verse five, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. Remember when we preach through the Revelation, we notice that our life in this world is often referred to in the Bible as a dream from which we are supposed to wake up. It's a bad dream induced by a snake in a garden who's convinced us that we must create, save, and redeem ourselves. You know, we all assume that we create ourselves. Remember that movie Inception where he said, you know you're in a dream because in a dream you're just suddenly there and you don't know how you got there? We don't know how we got here, but we all assume that we create ourselves. But we can only create false selves, like a bad dream. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers, for we are brought to an end by your anger. (sighs) That's scary. But stick with Scripture and you'll discover something kind of amazing. And that is that our God predestines His anger. In other words, his anger is not a reaction to our decisions. His anger is a means for creating our decisions. His anger is a function of his love, for he is love. We are brought to an end, Jesus is the end, by your anger. We are brought to an end. We are brought to Jesus by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence, literally your face. For all our days pass away under your wrath, which must also be his face. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. What's a sigh? To sigh is to literally expire, to literally surrender your spirit, your breath, your neshama. You know, according to Scripture, Jesus was the first Adam, first man to willingly surrender his spirit, his breath, the life to God, and he did it on a tree in a garden on Mount Calvary. And why is God mad at the children of Adam? Well, we take life, and we think we make life. We take good, and we think we make the good. That was the sin in in the garden, if you pay attention. In other words, we, we breathe in, and we hold our breath as if it were our own. So even as we live, we're already dead. To to live, you must constantly lose your breath and find it. That's living. Verse 10, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone, and we we fly away. We, We fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. When we preach through Ecclesiastes, remember we discovered that Jesus is wisdom. Paul even says that. He is our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. 
Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your relentless love, your steadfast love, your hesed. That means he's always loved. Satisfy us with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. All our what morning is Moses talking about? Maybe the morning of the endless seventh day that is God's presence and our dwelling place. And by all our days, Moses must mean all these days that pass under his, his wrath, as if he thought it was possible to somehow experience the promised land, even as you journeyed to the promised land, as if even now we could, we could hide in the cleft of the rock. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. Moses talks as if God foresaw and even planned his epic failure. And you know, it seems that Moses didn't even complain the day he died. Read it. It's really quite fascinating. It, it didn't, it's, it's as if he thought it was all going according to plan. He, he didn't pray, what the hell? He just surrendered to the king of heaven. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown, your work be shown to your servants. Do, do, that's a scary thing to pray. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor, noam, grace, beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses prays, establish the work of our hands. The work of Moses' hands was what? What well, was the salvation of Israel and Moses? Moses, or at least the false Moses, is the work of Moses' hands. Are you the work of your hands? So Moses, the epic failure, prays, establish the work of our hands. So does God establish the work of Moses' hands? Fast forward 1,500 years, which in God's reality is less than a day, and this happens. We read about it in three Gospels and also in Second Peter. This is big. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus had told them that they were going on a journey to Jerusalem and that they must lose their life to find it. About eight days after that, says Luke, Mark and Matthew say um, after six days, which would be the seventh day. You see, I think they're all referring to this endless seventh days that, 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 that the Jews re refer to as the eighth day, the Easter Sunday, we call Easter Sunday God's promise for us. Anyway, now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. He was transfigured. Metamorpho. It's where we get our word metamorphosis or metamorphose. He, he metamorphosed and his face shone like the sun. I mean, you get to the close of the sun, you'll get fried. His face shone like the sun and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. So they're glorious too. And they spoke of his exodus in Greek, his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that, that we are here. Let us make three tents, three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say because they were terrified. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud, a glory cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Understand what's happening? Moses is standing on the mountain speaking to the rock. He's speaking to Joshua, Yeshua, that is Jesus. He's speaking to the angel of Yahweh and the word of God who appears in the flame. He's speaking to the burning bush on the mountain of God. He's speaking to the glory of God and he shares the glory of God. 
He's appearing in glory, so much glory that Peter, utterly terrified, unable to stand, offers to build tabernacles or temples. I mean, that's what people do with glory. They put it in a temple. He's like, I'll build three temples. Moses not only reflects the glory, as he did in the Old Testament after, after he'd meet with God in the tabernacle. Remember that story? He not only reflects the glory, Moses now radiates the glory because he is the tabernacle. He is the eternal dwelling place of the living God. Moses has been metamorphosed like Christ. He now stands in the eighth day chatting with Yeshua about his journey, his journey through time and his exodus from time into eternity at the end of the sixth day of creation, sixth day of the week, sixth hour of, of the day. And, and, and now if you didn't quite get all of that, just get this. Moses... The epic failure is standing on the mountain of God with God in the promised land. So did God establish the work of Moses' hands? You know, most American Christians have been taught that Moses and all of Israel who failed to enter God's rest 3,500 years ago are now suffering endless conscious torment in hell. The scripture's clear that Moses was seen with Jesus in the promised land, no longer empty of substance, but full of glory and radiating that glory. And scripture's clear that God will raise the dry bones of the whole house of Israel. Matthew even states that when Jesus died, the tombs were open. The tombs opened and saints entered the city. Paul makes it abundantly clear in Romans, in this way all Israel will be saved. But not only all Israel, all humanity who is now grafted into Israel and thus fulfilling God's promise to Abraham that through his seed all the nations, all the peoples, all the families of the earth would be, would be blessed. So did God establish the work of Moses' hands? Yes! <laughs> Sorry, Hudson. Yes, yes, yes! He did. Hell yes. He established the work of Moses' hands and he established Moses. Because Moses is not merely the work of his own hands. He is God's handiwork. So Moses, the epic failure, is God's unmitigated success. And you, the epic failure, are also God's unmitigated and eternal success. And once you begin to see that, it will entirely change the way you travel. You will know that you are created, saved, and redeemed by grace through faith and, and find that the promised land is traveling with you. Indeed, the sanctuary of the living God is in the temple of your soul. You will enter God's rest for you will discover that God's rest has entered you. Soren Kierkegaard called this the third sphere of existence. The first, you try to save yourself with your passions. In other words, you see that the fruit is a delight to the eyes and good to eat. Good to eat and a delight to the eyes. So you take it and you eat it and everything dies. The second stage, you try to save yourself with good works. That is, you see that the fruit is good to make one wise. So you take it and you apply it like fig leaves. You live by the law and everything dies. The third sphere, you know that you are saved by grace through faith. That is, you know that the fruit on the tree is Jesus. And he's your bridegroom. And he gives himself to you. What you took from him, he gives to you. He gives himself to you, for you are his dwelling place, his bride, pregnant with his life, the fruit of the Spirit, his life in you. You enter God's rest because God's rest has entered you. We'll talk about that more next week when we read Psalm 95. But for now, just take a shot at believing the gospel. Our epic failure, our epic failure has become and is now revealed to be God's eternal success. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so, 
if you feel like a failure, maybe everything's going according to plan. For our epic failure is the revelation of God's unmitigated and eternal success, which is you. You are God's unmitigated and eternal success. So why the journey? Why the failure? Why even try not to fail? I get asked that all the time, and I think St. Paul got asked that all the time. Why even try not to fail? Well, you can't fail unless you try to not fail. And you won't know God's unmitigated and eternal success if you don't know your own failure. I mean, it's like if you fail to fail, you're just stuck alone here in this wilderness in your own illusions. So perhaps God has arranged things so that you will see the good, try to consume the good, and try to make yourself good and fail. So that you will know that you can't make yourself good, for the good has made you yourself, your true self. So that you will know you can't justify yourself, for you have already been justified so that you will know you can't save yourself because God is the savior of all. So that you will know you cannot create yourself. You have been created by God with his word, the word of God, and so radiate the glory of God. Now this is to say it another way. You cannot bear the weight of your own glory. That's surprising, isn't it? But I think this is what Scripture's saying. You cannot bear the weight of your own glory, which is God's glory in you. You cannot bear the weight of your own glory, which is God's glory in you, unless you know that that glory is an absolute, absolute gift. Moses cannot stand on the mountain with Jesus in the promised land if Moses is not entirely humble entirely lacking in this thing that we call the human ego. In other words, in other words, you cannot truly love. Love the Lord your God with all your strength, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor. You cannot truly love until you see that you've been loved, and, and you did not make that love. Love made you. God is love. Second Corinthians chapters three and four. If you would go home and read it, that'd be great because I think it's everything that I'm trying to say in this sermon. Second Corinthians three and four, Paul talks about Moses, he talks about us, he talks about glory, and then he writes this. These slight momentary afflictions, if you've read Second Corinthians, you know these are one hell of a set of afflictions. These slight momentary afflictions, these slight momentary humiliations prepare us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. We cannot bear the weight of our own glory if we think that glory is in any way dependent on us. And to think that it is, is evil. The journey is designed that we would come to know, at least at some level, because it's a lie, so I don't know that you can know this in the same way that you can be known or know the good, but the journey is designed that we would come to know the evil and forever choose the good. For the good has chosen us for no merit of our own. You are entirely God's success. You are not your own failure. You are God's unmitigated and eternal success in whom he is well pleased. When we know that, because we've been known by that, we're transformed, metamorpho, metamorphosed. On some level, I think we all know this, because every little child born into this world, every little child falls the day that they become aware of their own beauty and so try to bear the weight of that beauty. They try to justify their own existence and they stop dancing. <laughs> or at least they stop dancing in freedom. Why? Because they know their Father is looking. We're saved when we see that we are not the source of our own beauty, our own glory. We, we cannot bear the weight of that glory. We can only be that glory. It's, it's then that we begin to dance in freedom with joy before the face of our Father 
metamorphosed. The last time I spoke with my mom was about eight weeks ago. It was on a Wednesday while I was driving down to the office. I remember I was on Wadsworth, and I'd just been down to see her a few days before. I wanted to give her a call. I remember we were talking on the phone. I'm trying to shift and talk on the phone while I'm driving down to Wadsworth, and mom just kept saying, Peter, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know. I don't know what to do. Her kidneys were failing, her heart was failing, and I think she could feel it. Over and over, Scripture tells us that God does everything that's anything. Isaiah 26, verse 12. O Lord, you have indeed done for us all our works. All our works. Even, even if our works are, are nothing, I wonder if he could somehow make them something. He establishes the work of, of our hands. That's Moses' prayer. Paul wrote this, good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Anyway, she just kept saying, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know what to do. Peter, I don't, I don't know what to do. And knowing full well what I was saying, I remember I said this to Mom. Mom, listen. You don't have to do anything. And then we prayed. Two days later, after she spent the afternoon with my sister, the nurse came in to turn around 10.30 in the evening, like I told you, and as the nurse did, she looked up and she said, I'm a butterfly, and I'm going to fly away. And then she sighed and flew away. That means so much to me, because I know that my mom so often wanted to be what she couldn't seem to be, couldn't make herself be. In the words of St. Paul, she couldn't do what she wanted to do. She seemed to not be able to do what she wanted to do, but now she is exactly what she wants to be, and she does exactly what she wants to do. She's free. And yet, even in this caterpillar of a world, when my mom believed that she was loved, she would just radiate love. And when she believed that there was nothing for her to do, she would do what was absolutely glorious and free. Even in this caterpillar of a world, when we believe the gospel, our epic failure is already revealed to be God's unmitigated and eternal success. And so, children of Israel, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for, for freedom? Because there's a rock. I think we already smote it. Let's try talking to it. Do you feel like a failure yet? Well, maybe you could tell the rock. This is how you would say it in theological language. Jesus, I can't justify me. So say that. Ready? Jesus, I can't justify me. Would you justify me? Let's say that. Would you justify me and establish and establish the work of my hands? And so he took the bread and broke it. I imagine when you 
break a body, something spills out. He, he took the bread, he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. And in the same manner, he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. White cups are juice. Dark cups are wine. We invite you to come to the table, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and allow God to establish the work of your hands. So, uh, do you love your mom? You love your dad? I mean, even if you were an orphan, or even if they abandoned you or abused you, even if it was a substitute dad or a substitute mom, there's someone that, and you wrestle with this, even if it was painful, but you really love them. Do you know why that is? It's because they loved you when you were an epic failure. Every two-year-old is an epic failure. Have you spent any time around them? And yet you would give the whole world for them, right? Because they mean absolutely everything to you. And what is the most dangerous thing for a two-year-old to believe? I think it's this, that they're already grown up. <laughs> because if they think they're already grown up, they're stuck. They're, they're stuck in their own silly illusions. And so sometimes you have to get angry, even though you go in the next room and you laugh <laughs> at them. You get angry because you don't want to leave them, you don't want to leave them uh, behind. St. Paul said this, be metamorpho, be metamorphosed by the renewal of your mind. See, I think Satan has tricked us all into thinking we're grown up. <laughs> and the truth is we're still being made in the image of our dad, and he's good. I think maybe my one of my favorite verses that I quote a lot is 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we would be called the little children of God. That's not just what we're called, that's what we are. And then he says this in the next verse. He says, beloved, it does not yet appear what we will be. In fact, we don't even really know what we are. So <laughs> the idea of you judging yourself is just kind of laughable, you know, because you don't even know what you are. He says, we don't even know what we are, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. Do you understand what that means? It means that that party on top of the mountain 2,000 years ago with Moses and Elijah and Jesus was just the tip of the iceberg because you're going to be standing on that mountain partying in the new Jerusalem, constructed out of the old Jerusalem, but filled with glory. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel, and it will entirely change the way you travel. Amen.